Hello, everyone. You're listening to another instalment of Not Knowing About Poetry, a series of conversations about poetry. Regular listeners will know that you're currently listening to the voice of Joel Swan, and I couldn't be more pleased to be joined today by Joey Francis, who I think is joining this call from Todmorden. Todmorden, indeed. Hello, everybody. Nice to be here. Good to have you here, Joey. So today we'll be talking about poems by J.H. Prynne, a poet who, in spite of a long and influential career, is, for some people, slightly difficult to locate within British poetry. Having taken inspiration from American writers of the Black Mountain College like Charles Alston and Ed Dorn, Prynne's poems can hardly be thought of in terms of the mainstreams of English as it is taught at school, college or many universities in the UK. I've personally always struggled whenever I've encountered Prynne's poetry, so I'm glad to have Joey here with us, who is much more sanguine than me about Prynne's tendencies to put meaning at a distance from the reader through unsettling, distorted sentences and often alarming juxtapositions. And Joey, maybe you could just give us a quick sense of um, Prynne's place in poetry of the period uh, and the, the appeal of him aesthetically to you as well. Yeah, so I mean, I, th- I think to like to briefly try and locate Prynne, he's kind of seen as a bit of a figurehead of the Cambridge School, so-called, which is um, a, a way of describing an offshoot of uh, kind of British experimental poetry, um, which kind of begins with and alongside the British poetry revival in the seventies, um, and then con- carries on continuously. And Prynne's a kind of outlier, even within that idea of British experimentalism. He's often seen as both a figurehead, but also uh, one of the more extreme examples of a certain, I guess, late modernist um, kind of British poetic tradition, um, hidden as that tradition often is. Um, For me, I guess the the appeal, like I have some reservations, as you do, about... um, what the politics are of his kind of alienation of language, the way it disrupts the, the reader, the way it pushes us away. But I also find a great deal of pleasure in some of those same techniques, the way it disrupts, the way it um, surprises your expectations of like syntax, grammar, referentiality. It does things with sentences that you can't imagine like how they happen. And for me, that's like joyful, open, silly, and full of like possibility as well as challenge and impossibility. Yeah, I, th- I I think even though I've struggled with Prynne, certainly the reading I've done, I, I agree about that sense of possibility. And, and you know, I think that's going to be something interesting for us to see today, all the, the possibilities and questions that it throws up and doesn't resolve. All right, fantastic. Thank you very much, Joe, for getting us started with a really positive note. Now, um, in some ways, Prynne does seem like a really, really prime candidate for inspection in this particular series where we're asking what do modern and contemporary poets get from these older Renaissance texts. His work as a philologist means that his poetry groans with the linguistic, contextual and literary backgrounds of words and phrases. His reputation as an eclectic and wide-ranging university teacher also demonstrates the thoroughness and breadth of his knowledge um, of a really expansive literary canon, not just the the, the narrow, dusty classics. Um, But perhaps most exceptionally, the prose commentaries that those professional roles have given rise to demonstrate the extent to which Prynne is interested in and capable of a profoundly close and discriminate reading of literary texts. Uh, and especially those of the Renaissance. So I'm thinking in here about short books like his Specimen of Commentary on Shakespeare's Sonnets number 94, his discursive commentary on George Herbert's famous poem called Love, uh, 10 years later in 2011, and Graft and Corruption on Shakespeare's Sonnet 15. Um, These are joined uh, by a a commentary on the Romantic period poet William Wordsworth, his field notes on The Solitary Reaper, that's from 2007. Um, And this this mode of commentary that Prynne has writing about Renaissance texts, uh, as much as it is a display of erudition, this is also weirdly a didactic technique as well. And he's got shorter commentaries um, published for for students in China, uh, working on Keats and on Milton. In spite of all this background, in what I've read of his poetry, 
I'm really quite struck by the lack of obvious citational practices. And I mean this in contrast, say, to Victoria Forrest Thompson, who really wears her citations on her sleeve in a very, very interesting way. Um, and that this trait of, of, of citation and reference is relatively easy to examine in this age of digital books. Uh, his poetry makes many close references to literary precedents, whether that's a line taken directly from Blake or Johnson, a speech from a Shakespeare play running through a poem, or a tiny little phrase like celestial soil borrowed out of Wordsworth. But so far, I've really struggled to pin down any sense of what Prynne gets from Renaissance texts, or indeed any texts of the past. We probably aren't going to achieve that clear sense today, but I think it will be interesting to have a go and see what we can do. So let's get stuck in to talking about the first text, which is this time The Tempest. And that's an exceptionally well-known part of an exceptionally well-known playwright, Shakespeare. Uh, and it's slightly disappointing that we're bringing Shakespeare up again, um, but um, well, you know, sometimes we're put in the position where we have to do that. So this play, written around 1611, at about the end of Shakespeare's career or towards the end of it, this has been a weirdly enabling document for writers from the British Commonwealth to articulate the positions of colonised and colonising subjects, uh, as represented in works, for example, by Kamal Brathat, John Agard, Aimé Césaire and, and others. Now, perhaps this is an unsurprising response to a play that is not only ensconced in European colonial discourse, but also ostentatiously reflects on the reception of language in performance, book and song. And it is, in fact, one particular song by Ariel and its surrounding discussion that we will be our starting point today and will be picked up by, by Prynne in due course. Um, so this is a song, Full Fathom Five, My Father Lies, but we are going to remind you of just a little bit of the context, just a little bit of the context. The Tempest uh, features a group of Italians from Naples who've been traveling across the Mediterranean Sea from Tunisia following the marriage of Alonso's daughter to the King of Tunis. When they pass by the island where the play is set and where Prospero is um, already kind of marooned, their ship undergoes a huge tempest caused by the spirit of Ariel following Prospero's instructions. It's not clear why Prospero does this exactly, uh, possible, possibly revenge for um, his kind of previous political exploits and being put down, or maybe for the protection of his own daughter. Uh, the, the Neapolitans safely come to land. Uh, they have, they've been separated from each other, which causes various kinds of comic mayhem. What we're going to read is a, a scene of separation. Prospero's indentured servant, Ariel, leads Ferdinand with music and sings to him that his father is drowned. His father actually, uh, part of the deception of the song. Um, it may be that this is kind of part of, of Prospero's design, his, his trickery, uh, he's whispered to Ariel of other business for thee, which they have to, which they have to complete. So this is part of a kind of overall, but not yet clear plan and, and piece of kind of orchestrated trickery, I guess. Yeah, and, it, and I think what maybe is, is kind of interesting is you feel like you're made to feel like there's something very, very definite going on, but maybe in some ways Shakespeare's just trying to sling together a load of interesting songs. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's the context in which we find it. So we're going to share a bit of the reading. I'm going to start with Ariel, and I think Joey's going to take Ferdinand, uh, and then we'll, we'll talk about that and see, see how we get on. So Ariel enters, invisible, playing and singing. Come unto these yellow sands, and then take hands. Curtsied when you have, and kiss the wild waves whist. Put it featly here and there, and sweet sprites bear the burden. Hark, hark, bow wow, the watchdogs bark, bow wow. Hark, hark, 
I hear the strain of strutting Chanticleer cry cock a diddle dow, crock a diddle drow. Where should this music be? Either air or the earth? It sounds no more, and sure, it waits upon some god of the island. Sitting on a bank, weeping again, the king my father's wreck, this music crept by me upon the waters, allaying both their fury and my passion with its sweet air. Thence I have followed it, or it hath drawn me rather. But tis gone. No, it begins again. Full fathom five thy father lies, of his bones a coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Sea nymphs hourly <clears throat> ring his knell. Ding dong. Now, hark, I hear them. Hark. Ding dong bell. The ditty does remember my drowned father. This is no mortal business, nor no sound that the earth owes. I hear it now above me. All right, and I think we will we will leave it there. We could read on. But this is, I mean, this is really, really good stuff, isn't it? And two, two sort of classic little Shakespeare songs surrounded by a uh, very enigmatic commentary by Ferdinand. And we want to get into the songs right, but maybe the reason that I thought it was so important to read out that whole sort of micro scene is just the way it, it stages Ferdinand's reception of the song and Ferdinand's response to the song. Um, I wonder what you thought, Joey, about how he responds, like what he's saying and, and how he feels when he when he hears it. Do you think there's anything interesting in the way he, he responds? Yeah, I mean, it, it has him kind of very explicitly kind of bewitched partly, right? Um, you know, so it, it, it waits upon some god of the island, he says, and then how the, the music um, allay, allaying both their fury, the fury of the of the storm and his passion. Like he he sees this song, which obviously he's hearing like out of nowhere. So it's obviously like a magical experience. He kind of feels it acting on him in this it kind of magical it's like it comes from the space he's in and kind of uh has this like mystical power and he seems to just like readily accept that he just accepts this yeah the mysticism of it that there's okay so he's 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 bewitched but he's surprisingly okay with it is, is sort of that what you, is that what you mean yeah all like it just sort of he sort of reads it he says it as if it's obvious uh it's almost like sim kind of simple the way he describes this but and again, you know, this ditty do, does remember my drowned father. This is no mortal business, he says. And he's kind of amazed, but he kind of, yeah, he's like, okay, well, this isn't, this is magic then, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know, I think, I think there's, there is a point about the, the whole setting of the play that, the, you know, you, all the, the fantasies about being marooned that um, Shakespeare's obviously creating and perpetuating that you you end up on some deserted island oh well what do you oh what do you expect to find in these deserted islands just like crazy magic you know you wouldn't get that in England um, <laughs> but but you know out in the Pacific out in the Mediterranean well um who knows what you'd find um so you know that's maybe part of the mythology that that they're that, that they're creating here um and that yeah I mean the it, it's, it's striking that, you know, this is this, this, the Full Fathoms Five song, you know, that's a, a, a song all about how his dad's dead, his dad's not dead. Um, and, and he doesn't seem, there's no, there's no staging of mourning. Maybe that's what I'm surprised that we, we sort of see the Ferdinand, I think, for the first time here. And he believes he's, you know, he's lost his father and probably the whole crew, I think, the whole, the, the whole body of people who are on the ship. But I guess, well, but then I guess what he says is, you know, this music crept by me upon the waters, allaying both their fury and my passion with its sweet air. And maybe, and maybe that's kind of the point that um, the role of music, the role of song here, however much it is remembering my drowned father, it's also an allaying force. It's a charming force. It's a um, sort of maybe almost an anesthetic force. But it 
it, it's interesting because it, as you say the content of it it's really going to town on the point that his dad is very very dead and so it doesn't if I wanted to uh like allay someone's passion about it in mourning I wouldn't make such a point about <laughs> about the, the source of that mourning but but it does it in this this really interesting way where it builds in the the idea of, of like becoming part of this like beautiful ocean scenery obviously the the pearls that we'll get to uh but you know the coral this this like suffering a sea change it describes the death as like a sea change into something rich and strange so perhaps there's something there about why that might be that that would yeah. uh ease your mourning to say he hasn't uh he, he has become like part of this great expanse of of ocean or whatever Right, yeah, I, th- so I think that's 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 the interesting thing, isn't it? That that Ferdinand doesn't say why it's allaying his his uh, his 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 fears and his passions, um, but it, it it offers. Yeah, you're starting to talk about what it does offer. So maybe maybe we just need to go go into some of those ideas a little bit more of the full fathom five and, and sort of think about well, what is it that it's offering him? I mean, it's it's striking that sort of. Well, I mean, I and in fact, I will I will talk about the first one as well briefly because come into these yellow sands and then take hands, you know that um, as abstract as it is, you know that there is a a unification, you know there is a um, a greeting there um, where you can see, you know, all all right, Ferdinand, don't worry, you know, come under the yellow sands and and hold my hand and it will be okay. So maybe that's the first step, and then the second step is yeah number one saying your dad's really dead i think that's a good way of putting it <laughs> he's, he's full fathom five you know that kind of crazy syntax that doesn't really doesn't seem to add anything five you know does that mean full fa- five fathoms underneath the sea i've never quite understood what that means i mean obviously it's it's like fantastic and like the phrase and the syntax and the rhythm but like yeah i think it's like fully five fathoms is probably how we might pass it yes that's it isn't it so really you know no like 4.5 no 4.8 is five (laughs) fathoms underneath um the ocean my father lies um and maybe there's a a moment of peace there in the lying there um that however much there's been this tempest however much has been the storms however much we've had waves actually now we're not dealing with a a sea that's tempestuous um we're dealing with a deep sea bed which you know is is very mysterious place for for us and and even more mysterious for for people reading this in the 17th century um but that's a place where you can lie you know it's as if he's sleeping he's at rest it's all over his bones are coral made, so I like that idea. I like that idea that I think you you hinted at before that his body's becoming something much richer and such something much better than it was. But in those that first couplet, actually not a couplet, the first two lines, for fathom five, thy father lies of his bones are coral made. Coral is a precious material at this time, I think. Um, but I imagine it would have been seen as quite marvellous anyway. Certainly marvellous, isn't it? I'm just, I guess the, the, the claim that I was going to try and make is that there's sort of a nice, like, leading into from, from these bones to the coral, you know, some ordinary thing. That's not, re- that's not really true. But of his bones, a coral made. Um, I don't know. It feels just like this very this, this, this integration with the seabed. And I don't know what the knowledge of coral is like at this time. But, you know, he's he's right down there. He's lying so firmly that he's becoming coral. His bones are becoming coral. He's becoming part of the seabed, actually embedded in that uh, silt. But I, I think it's important that he's, he's also that what you say about coral, he's lying like in amongst uh, like some of its most like magical features. Right some of its most astounding things he's like being turned into something like as it said rich and strange I, th- I think that's important there too and the pearls obviously absolutely well I think yeah and I suppose yeah I'm going for this case of peacefulness but then you're right that the the images are deeply arresting and 
I think that's maybe part of the effect of the song is to be very, is to try and be very comforting and saying, look, you know what, this is what's happening. But then he comes out with these wild statements that his, his bones are made into coral and his pearl, and his eyes are made into pearls. Those are the pearls, those are pearls that were his eyes. Um, and in fact, it's, it's, it's mainly, those are the two like, kind of really striking images, aren't they? Those striking sp specific material images about the bones and the, and the eyes. And, um, you know, obviously when you imagine that scene of the eyes, there's something really uncanny about that, about kind of eyes that are the, you know, the windows to the soul becoming these kind of hard little objects. I've just discovered another very interesting thing about this. <laughs> I just looked up the term sea change, and this is its first instance. Okay. Um, so obviously the idea of a sea change being this kind of like, I don't know, like broad and like sweeping, uh, like change of nature or heart or however we use it now, here is has none of that meaning except that it, um, you know, it, it's a kind of portmanteau coinage, which I guess is just like, changed by the sea or into the sea and I just think I just kind of wanted to like reaffirm the strangeness of that for those of us for whom it is a dead metaphor right I like the idea so it's it's so sea change if we take that just out of context completely it's like the kind of change that's so pronounced it can it could only be affected by the sea only the sea can create this kind of change um and maybe it makes you think of that you know the profound power of the ocean um you know the whole the, the massive threat that it has but in this in this moment however threatening and powerful the ocean is it's also got that promise of um turning into something kind of weirdly beautiful and rich and strange to, to cite the phrase you keep going back to rightly um okay so so weird that he's invented that he's invented that phrase for this moment and then it's caught on it i absolutely love it i i um like well the way it has this idea of not just changed by the sea but changing into the sea which obviously is completely not in our in our contemporary usage really but here it's it, it has the completely it retains some of its uncanniness i think yeah or, I'm, you know, and I'm just thinking about, you know, the tides as well. That's the sort of sea change. Um, but the, I mean, that's a funny thing, isn't it? That the, 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 the tides would be one clear statement of the sea's changeability in this period. But this kind of sea change, is, it sounds like a permanent change, doesn't it? It isn't a cycle, um, which is odd. You know, tide doesn't change into something rich and strange. It just goes out and then comes back again. I suppose the sea is is itself, yeah, this great unknown and, and powerful thing, isn't it? And I think it's that unknownness which is called on here. Yeah. Yeah, because if, if he's full fathom five underneath the sea, you know, Ferdinand can't go and check about the coral or the pearl. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's effectively invisible. He can't verify any of this. Mm. So yeah, so I get, these ideas of change are being invented to allay Ferdinand in some way. Um, don't worry, Ferdinand. He's gone through a sea change and has become become something much much better than he was before. Um, is the sort of message it seems to be putting out there. Well, it's you wild, know, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's so interesting. And I, I've, I've always struggled with this little song. And I think yeah, t taking it at its, at its oddness and not assuming what it um, means, that, you know, we do some good work with it. I think it's so important that with it to not, to not naturalise it into its, its function within the narrative, but to see it also as, as this, like, own wild piece of, like, language play, right? Yeah. And I like, I mean, just to sort of to finish it off that we, you know, so we have, we've, we've talked a lot about the rich and strange, which is the coral and there's the, the, the pearls um, and who knows what else. But I like sort of its, its, its sign off couplet um, 
see nymphs hourly ring his bell. Hark, now I hear them ding dong bell. It's, you know, it's kind of silly, but this idea of a mourning ceremony that, you know, people are mourning, people are looking after him. Or I guess I, I assume that's what the knell is, is talking about. Um, you know, ensuring that the, the rights, the appropriate rights are being performed on his, on his body transformed into coral. I, yeah, that's how I would read that too, I think. Well, you know what, we could, we could definitely say more about this. <laughs> But I reckon we've had we've had a few minutes on this and it gives us enough to get started with Prin, I think. Um, and we can come back to it. But we, we've now got that in our heads. We now sort of know that little bit of the Tempest. We're then now going to go into the second text, the second poem, which is from uh, Prin's short collection pearls that were so obvious quotation from what we've just read so pearls that were is a pamphlet from 1999 part of Prin's later work that's maybe inevitably been less thoroughly discussed than his writing of the 60s and 70s like many of his writings from this period, it was first published in a limited edition by Equipage uh, in Cambridge, then gathered into the collection of pamphlets uh, called Furtherances with, with a couple of other really short things. And I hope I've said Equipage right there, Joey. Is that approximately correct? I'm not sure. <laughs> It'll do. Now, at this point, I'd usually like to talk about the way a, a modern or contemporary poet has directly engaged with the idea of reading or the idea of history um, or the way they respond to any kind of text from the past before we descend on one particular moment of citation or reference. And the title of this collection suggests that that's going to be a necessary and helpful process. Uh, and it's indeed interesting to point out that Prin does seem to want you to, to read this book in relation to 17th century texts. Uh, so in, in 2012, he read from this collection um, in, at a performance in Shenzhen in China, um, but he did so prefaced by a song from John Dowland's 1600 book, um, Second Book of Airs. So Prin himself chose to put this extra song in to prepare people to, to listen to his, his poems. However, whatever the author has in mind for us, the collection seems to invite connections, associations and overlaps with older texts and especially The Tempest, but never quite allows us to pursue those in the easygoing way that previous episodes of the podcast uh, have led me at least to become accustomed to. Uh, to put it simply, the version of intertextuality it's offering is quite a lot more complex than what I'm used to. So we're going to take a slightly different route through the, the pamphlet or through the poem or through the collection of poems, however you want to describe this little uh, object. And we'll read a short section of pages that we think open up some of the questions about reference and connection and see where that takes us. We will need to talk about the title, of course, won't we, Joey? But let's read those poems so people get an idea and then we can go and do some proper um, analysis. Cool. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll begin. 0.0 grams fibre in milk. We needed to know that so quickly for the sake of ribbons and fairings and the beasts so bonny. White matter tracts lying deep down under the code line clicking on rapid access to a faulted angle. Dogged, scalene, lacking. The sense of not feeling nor making a hit at the beak, the beak of a crow dark favoured in passion, now alert for his pick, will crest up to miss out the bollard, stepping, stepping so brightly, like eyelids over grit they trembled in lofty slips twice nightly. To swell up so long, this time indwelling in clouds going to flowers. In order, routine, adjunct and smother the meaner grace below us. 
all tangled in her hairs next to fright or mantled in burning, new scan over tumults intently, Afric storms scant in hood to undergo. A scorbic detail in this, they ride partly overlooked prior to attitude stormy, defensive shrouding, in a hunt for pitched cornice revealed. Too single. Care, caress fronds as to liberate race hatred's packaged tour, whose every touch kiss the rising hand will too bleach whiten yours. Shine ahead, cold star, like music on the water, in the wake of remission, from near, from far. Take beauty's injunction as pledge for the chain that binds up the open scatter sprinkled in chill rain. None so costly, none so clear, accepted on account of pliant, client deception to tarnish a fear. And rise up to vocal induration, lulled into fresh calm by motionless, undistracted insult to charm. Catch as catch can, a tempted dry loan will fly as yet she'll call high and low over wave-like slanted conversation to set a line, to entail and forego her shadow in channel, as were so causing a test of infringement, pressing up a case to answer while never sleeping or leave a stain within the cup, causing the charm, the pause never so alertly held abeyantly to flood entire, its moderate premium diving like a crashed star in salt water, outbroken fire. Nothing more, not much less. Take out the first and last, the waves still recoiling their crested and turbid confusions as evenly as mostly they will. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm really, this collection's really growing on me. I love it. I absolutely <laughs> love it. Well, should we just have a quick comment on the title and then, and then let's get, let's get into those poems. Um, because Pearls That Were, maybe that, that already suggests a sort of approach to quotation or misquotation, uh, reading and misreading or, or whatever we mean by those terms. Um, what what do you think the meaning of that title is? What does it mean to take that phrase, pearls that were, not, you know, a more obviously grammatical phrase, but those three weird little words and put those the title of uh, the pamphlet? I mean, it's it's partly about uh, kind of characteristically defamiliarizing is one of the things you might think of it as, right? So it's from this very, like, famous bit of song, but it it butchers the syntax or it you know it leads with like leads with the with the pearls as if it's going to say something else like that were like it's just not quite obvious where it comes from i think it kind of hides its own referentiality a little bit um and opens up possibilities of like alternative directions and syntaxes for itself yeah and i think i mean maybe it's worth pointing out as well that we've we, we, you know, we've tried to do justice to that song in the context of the play, but this is the kind of song that would be, um, you know, since the 19th century put into, you know, quite banal um, collections of poetry set to quite banal music, popularised in, in all sorts of ways. It's, it's not an obscure corner of Shakespeare. Like this is, you know, a really big, big bit of Shakespeare. So he's taken something absolutely famous and, I absolutely agree with you to be uh, familiarizing it. I mean, I find it interesting to pick out were um, putting something in the past tense. Um, and, and maybe it does say something interesting about Shakespeare that when we say, when we take that pearls that were um, in the play, it's, it's eyes have become pearls. So something organic, something, um, human something living has become something kind of hard and stony and valuable and fungible and precious um and there's that that's the movement from sort of ordinary to precious but pearls that were um also feels now feels to me like 
something that was a pearl before, but is now something else and maybe not as valuable as it was before. Absolutely. I think and this is what I mean about like taking that syntax and offering up alternative possibilities as we read it in isolation. So it, it yes, it becomes about degradation or, um, you know, decomposition or loss of value instead of instead of like flourishing and reclaiming or something. Yeah. And, and I mean, um, but, but if we do have it as kind of, you know, becoming a pearl, um, I think that's the idea of kind of canonical literature or classical literature and the, the, the collection's relationship to that idea. That's something is, I think it's Michael Turser pursues, one of the very few essays on this um, particular bit of poetry. Um, and I've mentioned like the sort of banal 19th century collections of things. And one of the most famous ones is, is the golden treasury of verse by Palgrave. Um, and when I hear pearls that were, um, to me, it doesn't necessarily just sound like an abstract idea of something that was valuable then, but isn't now or, or whatever. It, it sounds like the title of a quite boring <laughs> poetry collection from the 1880s, um, like pearls of, pearls of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, the beauties of Shakespeare, um, the, the beauties is actually an 18th century kind of title. Um, but it's, it feels like a pearl is something, you know, you can pluck and you can take out of context and you can just sell any way you like. Um, and, you know, it retains its value completely shorn of any uh, creation within a community. Um, yeah, so Tensor's claim is that this whole thing is about the whole book is kind of about literary classics in a certain way. Yeah, which yeah. We don't need to necessarily be convinced by it, but he he reads that I think really validly as like the title is kind of referential to these literary classics and perhaps having that doubleness of these um, as you say, perhaps like stale, canonized, and canonizing is itself a uh, can make things kind of less interesting and less exciting but maybe there's something in there about a reclaiming of the potential values in these, these kind of ancient pearls as well. These ancient pearls. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, I, I agree with you. Let's not worry about going down that route too far, um, but it's one to keep in the back of our mind. And I just think it's, I mean, it's just fascinating that the title itself is sort of this mini lesson in, in, uh, quotation and relationship to older literature. I just find that that's a great start. Um, the rest of the collection is a little bit more tricky. <laughs> so where was it we're gonna start? Was it with uh, to swell up? Are we, are we gonna start talking about that one? Yeah, I think so. Um, all right, so where, where do you want to go with, with this? And I'll, I'll try and, and make sure that this is kind of in the comments on the, um, on the podcast on, on Anchor, so people can kind of access this and look at it. So we don't need to reread it all, but what, what do you want to start with here, uh, Joey? I mean, there's so much, isn't there? I think, um, I mean, one of the things which we, we get here, even this opening to swell up, uh, and we'll see a lot more in, in a little later as well, is some of this like language of the sea. One of the things that is most referential about this to the tempest is it just seems like it we're constantly kind of in there and in the sea and um like this piece so obviously swelling up might mean a number of things i i've, I've th i'm thinking about like desire as well because there is some like quite a lot of sense of desire of possible kind of amorousness in this poem which also makes me think of the like central relationship between ferdinand and Prospero's daughter. Miranda. Miranda, thank you. <laughs> um, but all it's all often in this language. So then we have like clouds going to flowers becomes this kind of something about like the cycle of the rain. And then the clouds come back in. Um, you know, you have um like scanning over tumults, this sense of like the eye moving over the tumultuous sea and the clouds, like all of that stuff seems really present in this. Um and again, we like really clearly in the third stanza, stormy defensive shrouding. Um, and so that's that's like 
one of the kind of overarching like fields that we're in, isn't it? I think. I like that and that phrase to swell up so long. This time, indwelling in clouds, going to flowers. So this the swelling happening in all sorts of different places, but this time it's the clouds going to flowers. That's the swelling that's happening right now. You know what, And in that first stanza, the bit that caught my eye actually, and I'm not quite sure what to do with it, is, is the third line. So yeah, I, I like that idea of swelling, of um, a sea of desire, um, of a certain sort of, 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 of chaos, and, and maybe some of that power of the sea change as well. Um, but the third line feels, I don't know, an interesting mash of words. So it's it, so in clouds going to flowers, in order, routine, adjunct, and smother the meaner grace below us. And maybe another bit of language that's going to keep coming back is sort of a language of causation. And in order, that strikes me as being either orderly you know, organization or to do with a causal relationship. So in order that, um, in, in order for the Neapolitans to get onto the island, Prospero caused a, <laughs> caused a storm, right? In order to, in order for this to happen, he, he did that. So, but I don't know quite what to attach that to. Maybe that's what I'm, maybe that's what I'm struggling with here. If, well, if we read it that way, I think the in order gives us like one swells up whatever that means and again I I can't help but think about like becoming erect there partly <laughs> to be honest uh, this is what, what I was getting at about desire and I'm not just bringing that in that is set up earlier in the poem I think but there's something about like desire or, or to swell up one's chest you know which is to say to like puff up with determination or something the function of doing that in this context of nature is to smother the meaner grace right mm. that's kind of how i would read that but then you in order to do that you have to um almost skip over routine adjunct which like i can't place at all yeah well i guess routine routine goes within order um you know so in order in or you know if we, if we treat that as the organization in organization you know organizationally normal um, straightforward. The routine is a word with all sorts of different shades, isn't it? Um, no, I. But then adjunct. I don't know quite where to put that either. I mean, adjunct. You know, it, it's an it's to, you know to be added on, but it is also like an hourly paid lecturer, which like um, as for Prian as someone like perennially employed in a university seems relevant also. Uh, but again, I can't do anything with it at all. Yeah. But okay, let's let's just sort of keep on moving, right? Because I think it's, 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 there is a movement here, mm -hmm. and I like what what feels like quite helpful to me in the next stanza is we do get this character, you know, we get a person all tangled in her hairs next to fright, or mantled in burning, um, and this we're, we're relatively near the beginning of this short collection here. Um, and these these sorts of characters do sort of flit in and out. So we, we've had this kind of her figure before. Um, you know, we've, we, we, we've talked about this figure with her finest charm glowing, um, for example, um, and a, a couple of other things as well. So now it's back, all tangled in her hair's next affright. Um, so is it this? Is it the swell of the sea that's tangled in her hair's next to fright? Is her hair's next to fright? Is this uh, Miranda's violation from 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 Caliban? Um, mantled in burning makes me think of the of um, the, the the start of the play where where I think there is fire on the ship as well. Um, I don't know. I feel like we're starting to get into the tempest here, but I'm not sure how. Well, it, it has these multiple things, doesn't it? So, like, yeah, it's th this possibility of some kind of uh, desirous or unfulfilled relationship between, like, the her and some other, like, more hidden but perspectival kind of figure there. Um, and as you say, that's all shadowed in, in this relationship between Miranda and 
Caliban and Ferdinand and these, these male figures on the island, but also then like new scan over tumults intently. So so this closeness in merges absolutely with the, the like movement across and in the ocean. Like it just, it like brings them all, all together without quite allowing them to have a stable relation, doesn't it? And if I was, and if I was, if I was, you know, if I've got the copy of the Tempest in front of me, which, which I do in this case, <laughs> when I, when I hear new scan over tumults intently, and I also see the stanza before to swell up so long, this time in dwelling in clouds. I do think of Miranda at the start in Act One, Scene Two, watching the watching the storm intently, um, presumably having seen these before, and and needing to be um, uh, assured that no one's been hurt by by Prospero. New, but it's a, it's a new scan. New scan. It's a it's it's a special moment. It's a an important watch. Why he said scan instead of something else? Scanner. Um, don't know. Scan your items. Or, or what we might think of like the scan. How a line of poetry scans as well. Obviously, we have that the continual like self referentiality. Um, and of course, and of course, we have got the Afric storm, um, you know, which which puts us right there in in the tempest. Uh, you know, Afric would be would be Shakespeare's adjective for, for Africa as well, and he and he uses it in this play. But it also, I guess, has just like a vague in in the kind of Renaissance context, like a a vague kind of exoticism about it, a way of saying like over there in the other place, right? I mean, I would assume that about yeah, any any place from like Venice to Australia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely correct, yeah. And okay, so looking at our third stanza, did you look up what ascorbic means? Yeah, but I forgot. It's a good one. You'll, you won't have forgotten if, if, you, if you're sure. It's, it's a really unusual, obscure word. The actual only relevant use listed in the OED is from ascorbic acid and ascorbic acid is vitamin C and scorbutic relates to scurvy. So, yeah, okay. so, so ascorbic is something that takes away scurvy. <laughs> so ascorbic detail we're, we're in the sea again, you know, because it, we're always in the sea. We're always with these sailors and on these ships or looking at them. I think constantly in this poem, they're like the presence of the of the like seafaring folk, I think. Yeah. Um, and why, you know, so is, is an ascorbic detail? Is that like a landed detail? Is that what happens when you get to land and um, you can, uh, you know, get rid of the scurvy that you've been suffering from for so many weeks and months ascorbic detail in this and i'm imagining a colon there they ride partly overlooked prior to attitude yeah or land or kind of to do with like nourishment uh to do with like yeah. i'm just imagining the feeling of like an a, a like near scurvy ridden sailor like coming across a barrel of oranges you'd be you know you'd be like so like ravenous to be nourished and to be like kind of fulfilled, I guess. I don't know. There's like something about, uh, yeah, the like the sustenance of it, the restorative quality. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, res restorative. And it makes me just, yeah, wonder about, now I just wonder about like citrus imagery in, in Shakespeare. Um, and I mean, the, the word scurvy, so that's from the word scurvy. Um, and I don't know about the history of the word scurvy, but Stefano, Stefano and Trinculo and Caliban all use the word scurvy in the play. Um, but they they treat it as just a pejorative. So, so for example, Stefano says, um, or he, no, he does say, he doesn't sing, I shall no more to see to see here shall I die ashore. Oh no, he is singing, sorry. I shall no more to see to see, here shall I die ashore. This is a very scurvy tune to sing at a man's funeral. Well, here's my comfort. And he sings another song and then says, this is a scurvy tune too, here's my comfort. 
Um, so if we, we we think, you know, we've been thinking of scurvy as being literally the, the illness, but ascorbic as well, is that taking away that negativity is something of scorbic, um, you know, a positive, nice, happy tune. Mm. Well, yeah, the, the, the idea that there's some, yeah, so some possibility of like uh, restitution or like a proper relation or something. I'm thinking of like, this is a scurvy tune, it's partly like bad, but also partly improper, right? So. Yes, yeah, yeah, nice. And so there's there's a certain propriety in the way they ride, partly overlooked, partly overlooked. Like, oh, what are they up to? Naughty, riding along. They don't care who sees them. And I'm, I'm imagining the they as a sort of amorous they. I'm imagining they as Miranda and Ferdinand. I think I think they, I think the poem is quite amorous in general. I'm, I've made my claim here to that. But yeah, so I think. <laughs> yeah. But I wonder about this riding though, as well. This, this you think about like riding on the sea and then this becomes like in a hunt for pitched cornice revealed. And I don't know what, I don't know what that means. I mean, like a cornice, the only meaning I know for that is like a piece of like feature on a building. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that kind of makes me think of, uh, you know, the like romance, the like the kind of someone riding into a hall in like a romance or something, you know. Um, but, and I, I'm taking that from Hunt as well, but I, I wonder if, I wonder if this might be a useful segue to think about what these seafaring people are doing which might bring us back to some of the like sense of Africa storm and like well I I don't know I want I, I do want to comment a bit more on the pitched corners revealed I mean from when I heard when I saw pitched what I think of is tents uh, you know because you pitch a tent and I guess pitched can be you know pitches music as well isn't it um the the, the, the pitch of a note um I think pitch could be a, a slope also couldn't it um so, but somehow, when we talk about that defensive shrouding, you know, they're they're partly overlooked. Maybe there's a sense of propriety there, but maybe there's a sense of um, vulnerability there. That you're these these two people out on the island looking for a defensive shrouding in a hunt. So um, you know, seeking something, but also it's an it's an act of aggression as well in a hunt for like a, a, a nicely decorated tent. Yeah, or, I mean, I, I'm also thinking of pitched there as like covered in pitch, which um, again, just looked up, was used to um, partly as like to repair ships. Yes. Um, and so there's something about, it, it feels like there's looting happening. You know, you say like nicely decorated tent, but you know, the maybe the insides of another, the insides of another ship, but also, and then when we get to looting, we also think about like, the ways in which riches are looted from like across the globe, right? And yeah. um, and obviously this the tempest is at the, like the high period of like state-sanctioned piracy. Yeah. Well. Okay. Well, I like that 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 we you, that while something like shrouding seems protective, and well, the phrase defensive shrouding is making a claim for protection. The word hunt completely undermines that. Um, at least in Prin's poetry, the word hunt undermines that okay so and so your question is well what what are these seafaring folk up to and do you think we should move on to the last stanza in this little section are we ready for that yeah i mean i've been i've been kind of setting us up for like some of what this last stanza does okay so and maybe it's worth just reading that out just to remind us so the last stanza is too single Caress fronds as to liberate race hatred's package tour, whose every touch, kiss the rising hand, will too bleach whiten yours. I mean, it's it's kind of amazing and perplexing. And obviously that line, like race hatred's package tour, like it really stands out. And one of the reasons it stands out is because of the, the context you described earlier about um like the post-colonial readings of the Tempest as partly about um like yeah like about colonizing 
or people, you know, people kind of rereading and rewriting The Tempest through different lenses of sympathy for the kind of for people like Caliban for, and, and Ariel for these figures on the land. And that's kind of prefigured with this idea of the Afric storm and the like, what the attitude is towards the kind of exoticized like otherness of the space that we're in. But it's hard to know what to do with it. But I think, okay, but there's interesting things here. So, if focusing on that line, race hatreds package tour, like, I mean, if we're thinking about, you know, contemporary events and this rocky old weekend they've had in Washington, D.C., I just think of all these people who came from all over America, you know, these, these estate agents and respectable people who got on planes for a great time storming the Capitol in America, right? So, the, the idea of package tour just suggests to me so much um, respectability, propriety, um, dilettante middle class investment in something. You get a package tour to Magaluf. You don't have a package tour to like, um, you know, some something more interesting or innovative. So package tour suggests to me the very, the awful ordinariness of race hatred. Yeah, and well, I wonder, I suppose, like, I think it absolutely does. And I'm thinking what you say about, like, these, you know, our, our contemporaries going on a nice jaunt to try and do some fascism. I'm thinking about, like, Shakespeare's contemporaries and, like, the, like, adventurers and privateers and naval officers. And, you know, these people would go, and, would go out on adventures but they would also collect slaves on the way, you know? Yeah. So obviously someone like, like Francis Drake, right? Um, uh, and what, what I think was seen as in some ways as very kind of glamorous and exciting um, was, was absolutely like, uh, like early global colonialism. Um, yeah, yeah abs absolutely. And I think it's, it's kind of it's useful for you to sort of force us back to that early modern context because it's so bizarre and jarring to describe what's happening in the Tempest or, or what's happening in Elizabethan and, and Jacobean England as a package tour because it does have that kind of heterogeneity and a lack of predictability. But I think it's it, it's interesting. I don't know. Maybe I'm just I'm just trying to think of what that could mean or how we can use that. That. The, the the package tour of bringing together all the things necessary for you to go and do your fascism somewhere else the 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 the, the material conditions in which um which facilitate fascism and maybe there's something of that i mean how would we link that to the tempest that you know this seems like a very unpredictable play in some respects that it's all about chance and people turning up at the right time and whatever but but maybe you know the simple point of of, of the possibility of those interactions the possibility of prospero coming into contact with caliban and, and making him his slave and into contact with with ariel and making them his servant as well the very material conditions for that that's your package tour. We might not normally describe it as that, but if you read Prynne, then you you would. Oh, you know, Prosper, yeah, Prospero kind of as this figure who's actually doing quite well for himself under the circumstances, um, you know, controlling this little, uh, his little island colony. And of course, part of the relation is just this skip through the kind, the history um, of the reading of The Tempest, I think, as well. So I, we kind of follow it through the Tempest, through to its interpretations, and then back to here in terms of that sense of how it contains these, like these ideas about what what kind of colonial, like colonizing movements, and like these these gentlemen on their holidays. Yeah, and I mean, I think yeah, we, you know, Prospero. I think Brathen makes the point about Prospero prospering. Um, you know, he, he is, you know, he is kind of the, you know the archetype plantation boss you know we so so we, we've got this amorous poem you've you sort of laid claim to and I, and I I agree with you that it does sound like a a sort of love lyric and then we have race haters package tour whose every touch kiss the rising hand will too bleach white and yours and kiss the rising hand you know rising okay we've got your sexual sexual excitement of swell there but you've also got you know um, prospering 
rising up financially, rising up in power. You've also just got a gesture of, I'm, I'm trying to sort of imagine a gesture of holding out the hand to be kissed. Yeah, there's that kind of courtly ritual there, isn't there? And well, and but and so yeah, you you're right that yeah, kiss the hand sounds it that's you're absolutely right that that's a courtly gesture, but it's also a gesture for a subordinate, isn't it? Uh, you know, to be to be kissing this hand. And then we have like bleach whiten, right? Which I think is really important, partly because one of the things when I think of like bleach white in, in this context, I think of coral, um, which brings in a whole other thing like coral bleaching um, being like a really contemporary problem. But obviously we have like the relationship back to coral through the title and the song of the Tempest. And I don't know what to do with that, but also then this idea of like, um, when you have kiss the rising hand will to bleach whiten, I think about the ways in which um, like race has been partly like problems of race have been figured as to do with how uh, relationships might involve dilution or purity, right? Um, so we have this image of this relationship and then we have the like, the hand becoming more white. And obviously normally the anxiety, the racist anxiety is the reverse, the dilution of whiteness. Um, but you have these various kinds of things happening there. Well, listen, actually, what this is making me think of, and again, it's this, it's this thing with, it's happening a lot with, with this, this collection where I'm just sort of suddenly get an idea of something else. We could be talking about Ben Johnson um, in, his, in his mask of blackness, what he says, and it's, it's a relatively famous line, so it's not like I've just plucked this out of completely nowhere. He says, for were the world, with all his wealth, a ring, Britannia, whose new name makes all tongues sing, might be a diamond worthy to encase it, ruled by a son that to this height doth grace it, the, the son, King James, whose beams shine day and night and are of force to blanch an Ethiop and revive a course. To revive a, a dead body, um, so the 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 image of the the, the monarch as the giver of light uh, in, in a very powerful way is 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 a relatively conventional one in court literature. But there we have specifically that idea of um, the notion that like going out and civilizing the world is about making them closer to what white people are like, which was just like absolutely the present ideology from then. Yeah, kind of continuously in some ways, and 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 here it's couched in this this language of mysticism and uh, divine grace of of kinds, um, and in fact, I mean, but in but even in Prin's reading of it, it's it's about sort of taking that very grandiose imagery of of, of Johnson and putting it in a much smaller context, you know, of the package tour. So we're not talking about King James now, we're talking about your package tour when you go around uh, trying to blanch black people to make them white. And it, it becomes a kind of warning then to me, a warning, you know, the yours there is is the your of, of the like, the, the colonized and it's saying like, watch out, like watch out for these people, they're, they're dangerous. And I think that brings in the idea of the like, my idea of the bleach whitening of the coral as well. Like these people are dangerous to the to the natural landscape and to the people in it. There's something of that, right? Like these, don't trust these gentlemen sailors, they will, they will ruin your life. Like, and that's, I don't know, something of the storm that's being watched out for there. That, you know, this whole sense of, of in this particular poem of like, looking out warning against this coming storm feels like partly partly present of like what's coming right we've made it through this poem and you know it's just every every reading is just making me more and more interested in it and make me think all right this is this is something i can kind of learn from um i I don't think we're going to have time to do more. 
I think we should read that poem through and maybe just maybe just wrap it up there. Maybe just say that's our day because I don't think we're going to come to a bigger conclusion than what we've done because we've seen how we we you know we've tried as hard as we can to sort of put the tempest and this poem next to each other and say what's the connection and all we get is more questions all we get is more texts all we get is more readings and interpretations any one of which would be fascinating to take forwards and, and kind of use in our own thinking about poetry I'm not necessarily sure we're going to come to a unified statement what do you think I don't think it would be helpful to try and come to a unified statement obviously there were other bits I was very excited or interested in looking at but 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 it's all interesting and I think to, it would be a real fool's game to try and exhaustively trace the relations of this poem to all of the kinds of ideas in The Tempest and in like in all of its literary predecessors. So I think I'd be happy to kind of admit how partial our reading is and how how provisional it is and perhaps Maybe I mean, maybe what I feel here slightly as as an as an early modernist rather than as a reader of, of modern poetry, um, you know, it's, it's early modern literature that's my 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 real expertise. Um, all I feel is that like a lot of the lines we're getting, um, you you one could take forward as a reader of Shakespeare or as a reader of the period. And 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 used to to think through what you're looking at, like race hatreds package tour. You know, how could we use that to interpret the early colonizing processes? Well, that's not a task for tonight. That's another task. But I think Prin sets us up for that. Yeah, I think it's really worth just emphasizing how how one of the things this is doing with all of those sources is just taking them as like a deep well of thinking material like I don't know if it's exactly about the Tempest but it takes the, the body of material in the Tempest and in these other um kind of works and ideas around it as a real kind of like a literary presence and a presence of like historical thought and a metaphor set you know we have all of these metaphors about water and all of these things we've taken about the like presence of uh, certain kinds of like romantic tensions. It's all a kind of like well of material on which he's drawing. And also through this dense referentiality, giving us space to draw, I think. Well, why don't you read out the poem for us? And then we, we, we'll we say no more. We'll, when you read the last line, we'll call it a day. That'll be it. That'll be the podcast. And uh, we'll, we'll go on our way. Okay. To swell up so long, this time in dwelling, in clouds going to flowers, in order, routine, adjunct and smother, the meaner grace below us. All tangled in her hairs next to fright or mantled in new burning, new scan over tumults intently, Afric storm scant in hood to undergo. A scorbic detail in this they ride, partly overlooked prior to attitude, stormy, defensive shrouding in a hunt for pitched cornice revealed. Too single, caress fronds as to liberate race hatred's package tour, whose every touch, kiss the rising hand, will too bleach whiten yours. <laughs>